Hello, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman of Columbia Psychiatry, and this is Shrink Speak. Today, we're going to talk about what seems to be the topic of the moment, which is uh, competitive athletes' uh, mental health. Uh, and it was really presaged uh, some weeks earlier during the uh, tennis tours uh, major tournaments when the number one ranked woman in the world, Naomi Osaka, announced that she would not be participating in the tournament because she didn't feel that she was able to psychologically do media interviews. And this uh, precipitated a real uh, firestorm of commentary in social media, broadcast media on the rights and wrongs. But the silver lining on this was that it brought to the fore a historically neglected and stigmatized topic, which is mental illness and mental health. Now, nobody would have known it at the time, least of all our guests today uh, who we're interviewing, uh, but then weeks later in the midst of the Olympics, the greatest gymnast, female gymnast of all time, Simone Biles, uh, similarly recused herself from the main gymnastic event that she was uh, going to be participating and was expected to be kind of a slam dunk to win, uh, saying that she just didn't feel good and as a result, she didn't want to risk competing, jeopardize her teammates, jeopardize herself, et cetera. And she withdrew. Um, and she eloquently, along with her teammates, explained what the reasons are. So uh, we had been intending to do a podcast on this topic uh, previously, but this really hastened the urgency to do it. And I'm really glad that we could get uh, none other than uh, Patrick McEnroe to uh, be the expert from many perspectives to discuss this with us. Um, because Patrick, who, by the way, has his own podcast uh, and is a uh, commentator uh, for tennis tournaments around the world and has now become a familiar voice and sort of sports media personality. Patrick has a unique perspective on this. Uh, first, he was a competitive collegiate athlete on the Stanford team. Uh, then he turned pro and he became a top pro both in singles and doubles. Many mem memorable matches and victories. Unfortunately, one of the most memorable matches was this uh, marathon nighttime match at the US Open with uh, Jimmy Connors that went five sets. Um, but in addition to his uh, uh, prowess as a competitive tennis player, he also then served as the captain of the U.S. Davis Cup team, where he had to manage the uh, players who were competing for the, uh, for the U.S. And he also was the uh, director of tennis development for the USTA for a period of time. And now, along with his brother John and uh, colleagues, uh, he uh, oversees junior and uh, competitive player development um, at Sport Time Academy uh, and the John and Patrick McEnroe Tennis Academy. So Patrick, thank you for being here with us. My pleasure, Doc. Uh, it's great to talk to you. You enlightened me uh, in a lot of ways about mental health uh, in general when the Naomi Osaka uh, story came to light during this year's French Open. So I learned a lot from you. Um, I think this uh, obviously with what's happened at the Olympics this topic is not going anywhere soon, which, um, as you rightly pointed out to me, is a very good thing that this topic needs to be discussed. So there are a lot of variables to what Naomi Osaka did, certainly compared to what Simone Biles did in a sport like gymnastics, which obviously is, is uh, incredibly intense from the, from the mental side of it, but also incredibly dangerous from the physical side, which is a little bit different from tennis. So I think that uh, we have to take all of these things as their own situations, both uh, all of them very seriously. But when you think about Simone Biles and what she, uh, you know, the, what I just have read in the last 24 hours or so was that when she was, when she was going up in the air to do what they call the twisties, you know, when they go on the vault and they jump up and they do you know, twists and flips and so on that she, she kind of lost, was losing the awareness of where she was. So that's a whole nother level of intense pressure and serious um, physical danger that you're putting yourself in. So I think uh, compounded with the mental side of it, you know, that adds another dimension, at least to what Simone was feeling, um, to what Naomi Osaka went through. And, and we should also point out, Doc, that Osaka did 
light the flame at the Olympic Games on behalf of the entire games and for Japan, who she was representing there as a player. Uh, she won her first match, initially decided, I guess, not to speak to the press, but then came out and did sort of a small, I guess what you would call a pool press conference which was something that when you and I spoke a month or so ago, when she, when she pulled out of the French Open, was something that I believe that the tennis authorities should have jumped at that. In other words, to give Naomi another way to speak to the press while still allowing her to play in the tournament. Uh, then Naomi went on to lose her next match. And interestingly said after the match that she felt so much pressure, you know, being from representing Japan, playing, uh, in the Olympics, lighting the flag, I mean, lighting the torch. So there's all sorts of variables, but again, bringing up this conversation and trying to really listen to the athletes, which is one thing you said to me initially. Well, you said to me, well, if she doesn't want to talk to the press, that means that there's probably something else going on here that's maybe even more serious than just, oh, I don't want to talk to the press. You know, they annoy me kind of thing, which happens to all athletes at one uh, time in their career. So you were right. Uh, there was a lot more to it than just that. And, uh, you know, we have to keep talking about it and keep trying to figure out a way to allow these athletes to continue, at least in my sport in the tennis world, uh, get them help as they need it, just as they need help when they have a sore shoulder to, you know, go out and play a match. Um, and that's uh, an area where there needs to be a lot more discussion and, 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 and a lot more uh, moving forward as to how to do that. Let me just say in full disclosure that um, uh, Patrick is my tennis rabbi. Uh, he didn't convert <laughs> to Judaism, but uh, functions in that role. Uh, but also uh, to warn Patrick that even though this has a, a kind of a humorous uh, title, shrink speak, um, there's no softballs here. And we'll put you on the spot a little bit, but um, you know, being a McEnroe, I know you can take it. So here's the first question. Um, you know, I you know, had met your father, John Patrick McEnroe Sr., who was a pretty rough and tumble guy. Uh, and everybody knows John's not a shrinking violet. A lot of people, particularly if they're, you know, the athlete macho type would say, what is all this crap? You know, when I was playing, nobody talked about this. Nobody did this. You just sucked it up. And the Aussies used to say, uh, you know, if you're, uh, if you play, you're not sick. If you're sick, you don't play. Mm. Um, so what, how do you reconcile this historical, uh, you know, tough guy attitude, which athletes need to adopt in order to be able to compete at those levels, um, with, uh, the need to be sympathetic to the, um, person's mental health as well as their physical health. Well, I, I have to correct you. Um, first of all, doctor, because my dad, Ray, rest in peace, he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he would be upset if I let this slide because you called him John McEnroe Sr. There was no senior. It was just John McEnroe, <laughs> okay? And everybody okay. used to call him John McEnroe Sr. because my brother was John McEnroe Jr. But my dad is just John McEnroe, John P. McEnroe. By the way, both their middle names are Patrick. So I will correct you on that because trust me, if my dad were here, he would correct you <laughs> much more quickly than I did. Good um, thing we're, it's a good thing we're doing this virtually. Yeah, exactly. But uh, you know, you're right. I mean, there is that, that idea out there and, and more than idea, a reality that when you, when you play a competitive sport, particularly an individual sport like tennis, which I'm now learning a lot more about, to be honest, running the tennis academy being around kids of all different levels um, as far as their competitive level, uh, even, you know, taking my daughter around to junior tournaments. And so there's a certain aspect of, you, you're exactly right. You have to learn how to deal with failure in tennis, especially. You have to learn how to deal with it in an individual way because, uh, you know, if you play on your soccer team, as I did in high school, as my brother John did as well, you know, you're part of a team. If you play on your basketball team, your baseball team, of course, you're disappointed when you lose, your team loses, but there's a, it's more intense in, in an individual sport, I believe. You know, uh, it's not to say that you don't have mental health issues. There's baseball players. We've heard of the basketball player, Kevin Love, a couple of years ago, 
you know, so it certainly can happen in, in any sport, in any walk of life. But I think in tennis, it's a little more pronounced, particularly for young kids coming up, that they've got to deal with it. So uh, I guess what I'm learning is that it's okay to talk about it. In fact, it's way better to talk about it rather than to say, which I'm, I'm certain my dad said many times, you got to suck it up. You know, you got to suck it up. You got to accept uh, failure. You got to accept defeat. That's all true. Um, but there's a, I think there's a, there's a signal that comes through when someone in authority tells you that in whatever way, shape or form, which is I better shut up. You know what I mean? I better shut up and deal with it myself. And I think that's where we need to find, tilt the balance a little bit where it's okay to talk about it. It, Naomi Osaka, I mean, for anybody to say that Naomi Osaka shut up and play and you can't handle the pressure. I mean, this is a woman that's won multiple majors already in her career and had to deal with what Serena Williams, you know, and her went through at the U.S. Open when Serena had the blow up and Naomi had to handle, you know, finishing her off in the match, number one, and then dealing with the aftermath of what happened on the court and moving forward, which in, in fact, she said, gave her a lot of distress and a lot of depression moving forward. And since then, she's won a few more majors, by the way. So uh, I think we have to be willing to listen, be willing to communicate. I've, I learned this in, in trying to be a better parent, having nothing to do with being a coach or a mentor or a tennis person. Uh, when I, my kids were very young, I have three, three daughters you know, reading different books, going to classes with my wife on how to, you know, be a better parent. And one of the biggest things I learned was listen to your kids. Listen to your children, whatever age they are, acknowledge what they're feeling and what they're saying. Don't brush it off. Oh, oh, darling, don't cry. Why are you crying? You know, why are you crying? Don't cry. It's okay. No, it's not okay. You know, if they're crying, they're crying for a reason, whether they're they lost their bottle or, you know, they lost a point at six years old or they missed a forehand. And I'll never forget, I was, was on the court. I was actually trying to, trying to tell our young coaches at our academy about this because most of them come from, you know, suck it up and tough it out. They're young kids. They just got out of college. They're in their 20s. They're from all over the world. By the way, this is, this is from all of these people are from all over the world, these coaches that we have. And I remember this one girl was, was sort of crying and in tears and, you know, trying to play. And the coach kept trying to say, it's okay. You know, no, come back and play and that kind of thing. I said, watch this. So I walked over to the girl. She was sitting on the bench and her name, I'm making it up. Her name was Mary. And I said, Mary, I said, um, you look very upset. You're upset. And she looked at me and she said, I said, I, I, I can understand you're upset. And right away, her face changed because someone acknowledged what she was feeling. And the coach looked at me like, oh, my God, like you're, you know, like a guru or something. I said, no, I said, I just listened to the child. I listened to them. I heard them. And then when you hear them and they know that you've heard them, then you can start to, okay, well, what do you, you know, how could you hit your forehand a little better? Or let's try again. You know, then you kind of go into the coach speak thing. So. I think that uh, I've learned a lot. I'm still learning about what uh, is the right way to continue to approach this. But I know that brushing it aside uh, for a Naomi Osaka, just for example, and saying, oh, she'll, she'll come on board and she'll figure it out and she'll come to the U.S. Open. And, you know, no, that, to me, that's the worst thing that could happen because then we're not actually doing our best to try to make this better and let these athletes, these kids, these people understand that we're going to listen, we're going to acknowledge, and it's okay for them to tell us what they really think. You know, I, I want to uh, come back to this, you know, what is the experience of the uh, athletes, uh, whether they're children, adolescents, or, or young adults playing, but before I, uh, we do that, I want to draw a distinction in the way that um, Naomi Nosaka and uh, Simone Biles handled the situation. So both of them uh, had some type of psychological distress that they felt was significant enough that they had to consider uh, what to do in terms of participating in the normal routine of the event. And Osaka basically said, I'm not feeling well, I've been under pressure, and I don't want to do this. And she kind of 
uh, I mean, no criticism at all intended. You know, she kind of just put herself out there and she was like a target for everybody to either support or, or take pot shots at. So Biles took control. You know, she made a decision. You know, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm at uh, my best or I'm not at my uh, usual level to compete. And there's a number of things that are at risk if I screw up. Um, you know, apart from my winning, my team's winning, and there's also possibly, as you point out, gymnastics is really one of the most dangerous sports. I mean, I can't imagine doing the balance beam or these, you know, these floor exercises, you know, if you're not mentally uh, and completely concentrated on the, the event. Uh, but she took control of it, and she eloquently explained this. And I don't think either of those things, um, and so it goes for Serena too, Naomi or Simone could have done that 20 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. you know, there's a certain kind of agency that um, people have been given, and particularly women, and particularly people, uh, uh, women of uh, minority groups of color, of ethnicities, to be able to understand what's at stake for them. And instead of being kind of the um, objects of direction by the institutional authority or the event sponsorship, you know, they can look at it in terms of what is in their own best interests. Um, so, uh, you know, one, do you agree with that? And then uh, if you don't, you know, explain why, and then I'm going to get back to what, you know, your experience was like when you were growing up and how it generalizes to others. Yeah, I, I think I do agree with what you said about the difference. I think uh, I would add a couple of things to that. I think as Simone Biles said, she was inspired in a way by what Naomi Osaka did. Mm -hmm. So clearly that, I think, impacted her ability to feel that she could come forward, uh, number one, with, with what she really felt. Slightly different situation in that she's on a team, even though gymnastics is obviously you're doing it on your own, you're also participating as part of the team which is different than uh, Osaka at the French Open, where she's just an individual playing in the tournament. Um, and I think she admitted that initially she didn't handle her first sort of a public announcement about it that well. And then uh, she, if she had to do it all over again, she would have taken a slightly different tact in her initial announcement. I, I thought her second announcement after the French Federation and the other Grand Slam signed a letter essentially threatening to suspend her, which to me was way out of line and way over the top and way too authoritative sounding. And that uh, sort of pushed Naomi to say, wait a second, I, this is not what I can handle right now. I don't want to deal with this. And that's when she, you know, she played her first match at the French Open and didn't speak to the press. So this is before her second round match. And that's when she decided to, uh, you know, not participate any longer. And then, of course, didn't play Wimbledon, where she was sorely missed and not have her on the courts at Wimbledon. So for Simone, then at the Olympics, she's dealing with a, a slightly different scenario. She's also been there longer. I mean, she's been she's a little bit older than Osaka. She's been in the spotlight for a bit longer. Uh, she's already considered the greatest gymnast of all time. Uh, and then she's surrounded by a support team you know, not only her teammates, so you can see how close they are with each other, how her teammates who are also, by the way, her competitors, her competitors throughout, you know, most of their year when they do gymnastics uh, events and so on, they come together in a way that's great to see, you know, and they all supported her. They all like, you know, and got the silver medal, which was still a great effort as a team. So she's, and then she's also surrounded by the coaches, her own coach, the Olympic coaches. So I think that made it, a little, you know, she had a team around her and Naomi had her management around her, which I don't think they handled it well initially, you know, to kind of help her navigate those waters a little bit better. So well, I think what, you're, what you're doing is pointing out, you're pointing out circumstances that to a, a doctor or clinician like me um, translate into risk factors or mitigating factors for vulnerability to have one mm -hmm. of these psychological meltdowns. And, and I want to talk about that in terms of what can be done. But um, just to take you one step further in this and be a little bit provocative, the kind of empowerment that uh, uh, athletes may feel now, and particularly as we've seen with these young women, my inference is that 
a part of it is the fact that um, there's, and this occurs in all sort of institutions in our life, politics, uh, you know, as, as well as as, uh, as any type of entertainment or, or athletic uh, um, enterprise, um, the trust and confidence in institutional authority and sponsors, sponsoring organizations of events has been somewhat questioned, if not eroded. So if you think about it, you know, when you started tennis, you were what, you know, probably a, a, six, seven, eight, uh, kids start gymnastics, kids start, the, you have to really start early. You have your coaches, right. you have the organization, uh, and then you go on to be either in the NCAA or the ATP or the WTA or uh, the Olympics. And, you know, the coaches and the sponsoring event and the uh, institutional authority are like parental figures that you think have your interests at heart. And then you find out they don't always. So mm -hmm. Simone Biles, it was Larry Nasser. Uh, for uh, Naomi, it was the, I don't know if it was the, who, 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 who sent her that uh, ill-advised note, you know, well, we're going to suspend you from tournaments. Basically the president of the French Tennis Federation, you know, but it was signed by the other three Grand Slam tournaments, Australian Open, Wimbledon, and the U.S. Open. But it basically came from the head uh, figure at the French Federation, which runs the French Open. So, so athletes and, and athletes are, are they, kids today are smarter than when I was growing up, certainly because right. they're flow of so much more information. They have so many, so they figure out, you know, I got to look out for myself. Mm -hmm. And um, so they, this empowerment, and then we're in the age of me too. And we're in the age of, you know, uh, giving countenancing uh, minority groups that otherwise were discriminated, whether it's uh, people of color, whether it's uh, people of different sexual orientation. So the empowerment has given people license to do this. And they're trying to, they're, they're now, this is like the beta test stage where they're figuring it out and they're, they're, they're doing it. And we saw it in, in baseball. We saw it in football, a free agency with Kurt Flood when he did it originally. So right. do you think this is a correct analogy or am I overdoing it? No, no, I, I absolutely do. I think that the players are realizing they, the athletes have way more authority. Uh, they don't have final authority. I mean, just look at what we're seeing with the NFL now where, you know, some players don't want to take the vaccine and the NFL as a league has a little more control over the players than say a gymnast or a tennis player where they can say, well, either you get it or you're not going to play, or you're going to have to go through these other uh, variables if you're unvaccinated. So that's obviously a whole nother issue, but similar in that the players, uh, you know, Aaron Rodgers just deciding to renegotiate his deal with the Packers because he didn't like his deal and he wanted some things to change. Now you have to be, generally speaking, for a, 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 a situation like that, to be an elite athlete, be able to say, well, uh, wait a second, I'm Naomi Osaka. If, if I were Patrick McEnroe, ranked number 52 in the world, uh, it might be a little bit different. And I think that's some, is part of which kind of rubs the establishment the wrong way sometimes like they see well wait a second we have to treat everybody the same we have to treat everybody equally well the truth is is that's a bunch of bs i mean that just doesn't happen okay the you know the serena williams's and roger federer's and rafael nadal's of the world get the practice court when they want it at the u.s so so, so so when well, just for the record uh Patrick's ranking was 24 in the world for singles. But he's, <laughs> Actually, he's like, 28, but hold on. Uh, 28 being, was my highest. Yeah. He's, he's being modest. Um, so to turn that around, though, okay, so, you know, the great, biggest stars get to assert their, 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 their wishes more. Um, on the other hand, it also reflects the fact that they're basically the entertainment. Right. They're the right. entertainment. And, there's, there's, and, still a, there, there's still a balance because the balance is, you still, whether you're wh whomever you are, you know, Roger Federer and, and Novak Djokovic had to stay in the hotel in London because of COVID restrictions, like everybody else under extreme circumstances. So there's still, you know, if they said, no, I'm not doing it, then guess what? Then you're not playing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So still at the end of the day, there's still that, that time when the authority figure can, you know, you have to play within the rules of the game, right? So that rules of the game, there, there do have to be rules. There can't just be a total free-for-all. And as an athlete, as a Naomi Osaka, you have to, at, in some way, shape, or form, you must speak to the press, okay? That because the press is a conduit, not in the same way it used to be because of social media 
that Naomi Osaka's personal platform is bigger, you know, likely than the tournament she's playing in, you know, because she's so popular and has so many followers. But when you do sign up, you do, you know, part of signing up is to, to play these events is that you have to play within certain rules. Now, how the rules are evolving is what's going to be so interesting for me to see. Yeah. Because I believe that the, you know, for, let's take the U.S. Open, just an example, because it's coming up. The U.S. Open, the USTA, who I used to work for for many years, so I know pretty well how it works. Uh, in my mind, they have to find a way to go to Naomi Osaka and say, we want you to play in the tournament. We want you to speak to the press. If you're uncomfortable for your mental health going into the press conference with the lights and the hundreds of people like what normally is, let's find a way, you know, to deal with this. Uh, let's find a way that you can do it in a way that works. By the way, the, the world is going on. You know, we've all, we're going on with COVID and restrictions. And, and the other thing is the world can go on with no sports. I mean, it's possible. We saw there was no Wimbledon last year it, and, it, and we all survived. We made it, we made it through. So in other words, the reason I'm saying that is you don't have to just go back to the way it was. We don't have to just say, no, the players have to just do a press conference every, really? I mean, we're still going to have a tournament. Naomi Osaka is still going to communicate with ESPN and, you know, the national media. We can find a way to do this, to make this work. And I think that's how, that to me is what's going to have to tilt that balance of how we, we navigate those waters moving forward rather than it's my way or the highway. If you don't like it, don't be a tennis player. You know, that's the old attitude. If you don't like it, then don't play. No. I mean, to me, that's a, that's the absolute wrong way to go and the wrong answer. Well, uh, and, and there's a, uh, I don't know how it translates into you know, sensitivity or vigilance about mental health and mental illness, but you already have a standard with uh, injury. So if, if you countenance that, you know, this is, you know, stress and potential, you know, mental disorders or something that could impair an athlete and uh, even uh, make them unable to compete, then how do you, how do you sort of recognize that? How do you manage that? How do you, how do you provide some kind of uh, treatment or support for that? So clearly there's, you know, when it comes to physical injury, every sport is all over that. And uh, because, you know, if somebody's not able to function because of a knee or shoulder or muscle or whatever, then, you know, they're not going to have the entertainment value and the competitive performance value that they need. Um, if you then say, okay, well, we need to have the same kind of thing in terms of a person's uh, psychological status, that's harder. And um, there's also the potential for athletes taking advantage of that, just making excuses right. or manipulating, like the famous bathroom break after, you know, when right. you, after you lose a set. Right. Right. So, so there has to be a way to adjudicate that. And it's even then more complicated because in so many ways, the, the, the difficulties that you face, losing a match, being in a tough match, being on your own, uh, the disappointments make you stronger psychologically over the, over the years in the right. course of your career. So there has to be a way of assessing, you know, what's kind of the worried well and the normative type of ups and downs, and then what's something that really puts somebody in, in jeopardy. But in terms of that, when you were coming up and going through the juniors and then in college and everything, uh, you, what, what, what is it like for somebody? Because it changes your life. You know, you don't, you can't go to the same number of parties on weekends. You can't do all the right. things. You're also going through these things, parental approval and so forth. I mean, what is the normative experience that these uh, athletes face? And then, you know, maybe if they have these susceptibilities, you know, at risk for developing something worse. Well, certainly when you're, when you're growing up playing, you know, high level competitive tennis or competitive, any sport or being a piano player, you know, whatever it is, or in your school choir, or you're the star lead of your broad of a Broadway show, you have to make certain sacrifices, you know, to be able to pursue something that, you know, at a high level. So then I think as a, as a kid and as a parent now, and as a, uh, as a teacher and what I, you know, consider more of a mentor for some of the kids at our academy and some of our parents as well, which is you, you have to find out what the child really wants to do, you know, and you have to find out how passionate they are about what they're doing. And like you said, there's so many other 
things going through adolescence, whether it's parent approval, you know, um, peer approval, and so on and so forth. So that's tricky. And uh, I'm not going to say I have all the answers to that. I mean, I, I was lucky enough that I was, you know, able to play other sports as a kid. Tennis wasn't the be all end all, as it is for a lot of kids these days that, you know, they're playing at a, at a reasonably high level. You know, I played on my soccer team in my high school. And, but but you know, are, played, are, there, are there instances, though, when you lose a match or when something happens where you fail to meet your performance expectations where you're like why am i doing this yeah i'm like i have many times that i remember saying like why the heck am i doing this this, mm -hmm. this sucks you know this, this, does, this, does it ever does it ever sort of knock you out emotionally so that you you just can't function or get over it uh it knocks me out to a point where i'd be you know i'm gonna go eat a big pizza and have ice cream or <laughs> maybe i'm in you know when i was in college i'm gonna go drink a bunch of beers and you know with my buddies uh so there's all sorts of ways that those things happen i remember being in in, in japan playing a tournament in the qualifying i was just out of college i was in my you know early 20s and i'm like you know losing to like some 17 year old and I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? Like, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. uh, what's, what's the payoff? Am I going to be good enough to be a legitimate pro? Maybe I should go back to school. You know, my mom said to me, I remember my mom saying to me when I graduated from Stanford, uh, oh, you're never going to be as good as, well, she didn't say it directly, but I felt this. You're never going to be as good as your brother. So why be a professional tennis player? Well, my brother was number one in the world, so not that many people are going to be as good as him. So I had to come, to, I had to come to grips with that myself. She sounds like my mother. It wasn't easy, you know. It wasn't easy to be like, okay, because, but I had to, I had to. Here's what I asked myself, Doc. I asked myself, what does Patrick McEnroe want to do when it came to where am I going to go to college? because I was being recruited. I was one of the top juniors in the country at the time. And I was being recruited by Stanford, which is where both my brothers went, by UCLA, which was a power, you know, all the powerhouse tennis schools, basically. And I remember one of the coaches from a, a, a school other than Stanford said to me, oh, you don't want to go to Stanford because you're just going to be compared to your brother because your brother went there. Mm -hmm. I'm like, That's I thought about good, it. And I said, pretty, you know pretty, what, pretty it's a, yeah. it's a pretty good school also. <laughs> yeah, pretty good school, right? And I thought to myself, you know what, wherever I go, I'm going to be compared to my brother. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to have to figure out if this is really what I want to do. You know, so I had a little, and by the way, just because my brother was famous and a great player, you know, kids deal with this when they're just have an older sibling in school, mm -hmm. you know, and the teacher says, are you going to be as good a student as your sister, as your older sister? So it's the same exact thing. It's just at a different you know, in a different uh, arena. Um, so to answer your question, yes, you have these things happen all the time. They happen to high level professional tennis players all the time. And it makes you sort of take stock. But I guess what we need to do is, you know, as part of the professional tour, there should be more people like you around professional tennis. You know, well, that I'm, 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 to... I'm going to get to that in a minute, but let me take the yeah. flip side of the, the other. So in one hand, athletes, uh, people that achieve great success in athletics, by definition, are disciplined, resilient, and have enormous strengths of all sorts, physical and mental. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, you know, they're subject to, you know, superhuman pressures and stresses. And one side of it is that, you know, the, the jolt of losing or, you know, having some big disappointment can knock somebody for a loop emotionally and they become depressed and they can't bring themselves out of sounds like pizza and beer was enough to bring and ice cream was enough to bring you out right. of it. Right. Not everybody's right. like that. But right. the other thing is anxiety. Yeah. So then 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 anxiety builds up. And when you go in, there's performance and uh, uh, Patrick's wife uh, is a, a, a Broadway a theatrical performer and entertainer. Right. Um, so she knows performance anxiety and can tell him since he never suffered from it. But um, so is anxiety something that you see in kids or that you experience or that you know among you know your colleagues on the tour that is something that it becomes a problem for people uh, other than just everybody has nerves and they have to find a way to cope with it? 
it definitely becomes a, a major problem for some people. There's no doubt about it. Even Marty Fish, who, who I think you know, played Davis Cup for, for us when I was a captain, and he went public, you know, at, at late in his career. Uh, he was about to play Roger Federer at the U.S. Open. He had sort of retooled his whole body in his late 20s and gotten in great shape. He'd sort of maybe considered himself a little bit of an underachiever because he wasn't in, you know, tip-top incredible shape for for a high-level player. Got to that point and was going out to play Roger Federer, I think, in the round of 16 at the U.S. Open when Federer was at the peak of his powers. So he had nothing to lose. You know what I mean? Like he could just go out there and enjoy. He'd worked hard. He'd got his ranking up. And now he's going to go out and play Roger Federer. And he had so much anxiety that he couldn't take the court. He just couldn't take the court. He just couldn't go out there and do it. Very similar to, I guess, Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka. And this is before, you know, we people really even talked about it and really even understood it. And, and he didn't even, I think, entirely understand it. And certainly didn't say at the moment, I'm not playing because I have anxiety. I think he just came up with some excuse, you know, that why he's not playing. So clearly this has been going on. I think it's run too many people out of the sport too early. Um, and I think this is an opportunity in the tennis world to say, how can we find a way to keep the Naomi Osaka on the tour happy? healthy, playing high-level competitive tennis for as long as possible, you know, and we're also seeing how these players are playing, you know, a lot longer. Their longevity is a lot greater now because of better, better physical preparation, and, and certainly you would have to say mental preparation for, you know, the Serenas and the Federers and the Nadals and Djokovic's that are even, you know, now in their mid-30s. That's awesome for tennis and awesome for these players that they don't need to play every week, week in, week out. They can take time for themselves to recover mentally, physically, spiritually, so that they can continue to play for as long as possible at a high level in the game. And we in the tennis world need to figure out what can we do better to help that happen more often rather than the burnout in the mid-20s and I'm done, I can't take it anymore, I got to do something else in my life. And don't forget Tom Brady at 40 winning a Super Bowl. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, LeBron James, like still going strong. So so um in that uh, on that topic, if somebody has a physical problem, there's no there, there's no process by which the uh, ATP or the USTA or the W or any any of the oversight organizations sort of weighed in and managed. It's left up to the player and their team pretty much to uh well, they'll, they'll, have, they'll have to be seen by the doctor on site. So they'll, you know, or oh, okay. the physio on site. Yeah. If, uh -huh. if you're going to pull out because you're, you know, you have a bad shoulder or a bad or an ankle injury, whatever it may be, um, there, there is a process in place. You know, I remember when I was a Davis Cup captain, if you're going to, if you're going to substitute someone out because of an injury or an illness, that person would have to be seen by what's called a neutral doctor you know, that assesses the person, you know, as opposed to you're trying to kind of pull a fast one and substitute someone, you know, you have to come up with a legitimate medical reason. So it's the same if you pull out of a, of a tournament, you know, of course you can make that judgment, but there is a process in place that says, you know, we need a physician, medical officer, so on and so forth to sort of legitimize that there is actually something going on. Now, if it's a mental issue, this, this is what I'm talking about. There needs to be someone of your ilk, of your background, who's involved with the, with the tennis tour that says, okay, you know, Marty Fish, you know, he just, you know, there's a reason why he can't go out there today. You know, he's, he's right. right. He, need, he needs help. Well, that's what I'm getting at. So you're talking about that um, sports has a trust but verify kind of approach to ensure that um, people aren't sort of fabricating or using. Right. I'm talking the opposite. I'm saying if if let's say you know you're playing uh, in the midst of a tournament or or between tournaments, you know you've developed you know a rotator cuff injury and you're left to deal with it on your own, which people obviously are motivated to do but the organization isn't guiding you to who the best orthopedist is or what you need to do to get the best treatment to be back in, in good physical health. 
um, there's nothing like that because it's assumed that the individual is going to find a way to heal themselves. Well, you can get help from the tournament. That, that's the, I mean, if I'm, if I'm in the middle of the U.S. Open, as I was, you know, let's take me and just an example. In 1995, I made the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open in singles. And I had a horrible problem in my wrist. You know, right here in my left wrist, I played with a two-handed backhand. So I would go see, you know, the trainer every day to get, you know, the, the trainer on site. His job is to try to help you get on court. You know what I mean? Massage your arm, give you ice. But, but that, 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 that's a little bit like the show must go on. What about between yeah. tournaments? What about between, what about, but what between, about? Between tournaments, you're, you're right. You're essentially on your own. You can get, you can get advisement from the people that work from the tour. Yes. But essentially, when you, you know, it's not like you're on an NBA basketball team where you, or you're on, the, on, the, on a football team in New York and you go see the, who the team doctor is. You know, that doesn't exist in tennis. So you're on your own to find someone that can help you. Uh, so that's another great question is that, you know, but what happens is certain individuals who can afford it will do, will say, you know, I'm going to do my own thing, which is what the top players do. They have their own teams. They have their own physio. Uh, if you're an, an average player who's, you know, playing in the U.S. Open or Wimbledon, you are, for the most part, going to use the team that is hired by the tournament because you can't afford to hire your own team the way Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Serena, Osaka. They can hire their own coach, their own fitness trainer, their own physio, and they do that because it makes it easier for them and gives them, they think, an extra edge competitively. And what do they do for mental health? That, that's the question. You know, some of them have mental health coaches. You're hearing them talk about that. Iga Swiatek, the young uh, player from Poland who won the French Open, talked about that. But they, they basically, like, like they do with their own teams, hire them themselves. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think of that as not really equivalent to having an orthopedist or, or a physio even. Uh, basically, those are people who are trying to enhance performance psychologically as opposed to determine if mm -hmm. there's some uh, problem that a person's having psychologically or even an illness. But do you think, so I, I'm going to throw out some data and also some um, recommendations um, regarding this issue. And the question, you know, sort of underpinning it at all is would players on one hand, but then the uh, sponsoring organizations or institutional organizations uh, would, would is this something that they would uh, be interested in or uh, uh, be accepting of, which is taking some responsibility for having uh, resources in place for you can't force people to seek treatment if they don't want it and you shouldn't. Right. But right. Uh, if someone wants it to ensure that they're getting the treatment that they need and having this process in place. So um, there's first of all, there's insufficient data on what happens to you know elite athletes in uh, competition you know over the course of their careers in competition whether it's amateur or professional level there's inadequate there is some data but inadequate but most of the data shows that they are very they do very well it's because what got them to be so elite and good is are such strengths that it carries over to their overall health physical health and mental health on the other hand um, there are particular kinds of conditions that they are more susceptible to or particularly susceptible to anxiety, depression, uh, eating disorders, substance abuse, many of the other things, psychosis, uh, certainly not um, uh, 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 eating disorders, uh, I mean, uh, bulimia. And there are some complications that can occur in extreme cases um, like self-harm, and I don't mean mm -hmm. suicide necessarily, but cutting for relief of tension. Right. Or right. So, um, so by and large, they're healthier than the general population, but they can develop these conditions as a result of the experience of, the, of competition. Also, there are things that are knowable about them going in as to what their risk is apart from what happens in their career, family history, uh, genetics, the type of sport they're in, like tennis versus a team sport. And so one could know how much risk someone has. Like, for example, you have a physical, do you have a heart valve defect? You know, do you have a family history of heart disease? Same kind of thing with, uh, with mental disorders. So, you know, there could be something that could help players have some sense of what the risks are facing them. You know, I remember 
some players have retired because they had some injury and they don't want to risk it. Um, right. I mean, usually a, 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 cardio, a cardiologic or orthopedic problem. But the, the thing is, is that if you then recognize, if you are having a problem, you're willing to sort of acknowledge it at least to yourself, you want to get help. Then the question is, is where and how do you know who to go to and how do you know how to get competent help? And then uh, how do you pay for it? Uh, because right. the insurance benefits aren't always comparable across this. So it seemed to me that one thing that uh, sports organizations could do is to have something in place which isn't obligatory but is available to uh, uh, athletes if they needed to uh, seek attention for this. Um, so the question is, is that something that you think is even plausible or of potential uh, interest to overseas organizations and athletes? I believe the Women's Tennis Association already has something like that in place because I've heard them, you know, talk about it in the post Naomi Osaka situation that they have people available. But I think it just needs to be taken to another level. I'm not sure if the ATP, the men's tour, does or not. Uh, but clearly, to me, there's absolutely no doubt that that should happen and that that needs to happen um, and that should be taken care of by the tour you know, from a, from a payment standpoint, when I had my shoulder surgeries, you know, when I was playing, you know, at the tail end of my career, you know, I paid for it. I mean, that, you know, that was part of uh, being a professional athlete, but uh, whether, whether or not you can get the tours, you know, to agree to do that at every level, you know, it's gotta be for a certain level though. Right. You would think that, um, that's something that has to happen, but you're right. It brings oh. up so many different issues as far as I, 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 who's going to pay for it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I mean, I think that if there was an interest in pursuing it, that there could be obviously an exploratory process, but I don't think the, whether it's NFL or the, the, the NBA or, or the ATP that the organization should pay for it, but they should have a preferred insurance vendor Right. That, that is providing a, a policy with uh, generous benefits and benefits which are um, uh, equitable in the sense. So in 20, 2008 and then 2013, something called the Mental Health Parity Addiction Equity Act was passed by Congress. And it said that uh, if an employer or an organization uh, contracts with an insurance company for health benefits, health policy, that uh, if they offer mental health benefits, they have to be equivalent to medical surgical benefits. You know, you can't cheap out and just say, right. oh, and offer, you know, five sessions with a psychologist. That's, that's our mental health benefit. It's got to be equivalent. So, the, you know, the sponsoring organization uh, simply looks for a good vendor and makes it available to uh, the athletes if they want to, to see. And, and then in that context, you know, can provide sort of a roster of preferred, preferred providers, you know, not uh, fly-by-night snake oil salesmen, but competent mental health providers, psychiatrists, psychologists, et cetera, um, and have that so they know who to go to. Because, you know, if you have a, if you have an orthopedic injury, you know, you're going to go to, you know, Alchek or somebody, you know, who's a right. known person, uh, you know, if you have, you know, depression or anxiety, you know, who's Marty Fisher, who's Naomi Osaka going to go to? Um, mm -hmm. You have to figure it out. Well, I think that uh, clearly that that's what they should do. And I think clearly they're also, in my opinion, should be someone on site during these tournaments to help when need be, just as there are people on site to say, you know, my shoulder's sore. Can you give me a rub? Can you give me some um, anti-inflammatories, whatever it may be. So to me, the mental side of it should be treated the same way. And, you know, the, 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 the authorities in tennis um, and the sort of the player, they're not quite unions, but the player, they're supposed to be there supporting the players, the WTA and the ATP should get behind that and should, should, it should fund that and make that, you know, just like when you show up, you know, back when I, when we first started on the tour, and you'd go to turn, you know, there was no massage. You couldn't get a massage on the site. And, you know, now you go to the U.S. Open and there's a room of like, you know, 10, that the tournament hires, you know, 10 to 15 local massage therapists that are there to service the players, to cater to the players. So you're telling me there can't be an office there with someone, you know, there for mental health and someone saying, you know, I got to play tomorrow. I'm dealing with these issues. 
I can't sleep, I'm taking sleeping medications, and so on and so forth. Uh, why shouldn't that be treated the same way your, your uh, slightly sprained ankle is being treated? So uh, this is my last question for you, Patrick, and you've done a great job sort of fending me off on anything that would have been a little bit uh, dicey. What do you think is going to happen going forward now that, you know, the cat's out of the bag, you know, uh, through, to their great credit, uh, Simone, uh, Naomi, uh, Serena um, have sort of brought this to the fore and, you know, broken the ice. Is it going to sort of go back in the bag or is it going to go away or is this something that other players, it's going to spread among other players or it's going to, you know, be responded to by, by the oversight organizations? Well, it better be responded to, and I'm certainly going to try to do my part to keep it out there. I'm just a small fish in, in this pond, but I, I believe it should be responded to, and I think it will be a real missed opportunity if it isn't. And if the Naomi Osaka and other players that aren't of her stature feel like, oh, well, I can't really get away with that or bring this to light. No, this should be brought to light. Uh, we should keep the pressure on, you know, you people like you and me in our in our own way to force them to have to deal with it. And and if more players do it, great. And I think that Naomi deserves a huge pat on the shoulder for being willing to put herself out there, you know, which she's done in, in a couple of different situations, including last year, you know, with the with the BLM you know, protests that she led in the tournament just right a few days before the U.S. Open, the Western and Southern event in Cincinnati, where she really led the charge for not just for players, but for tennis and the establishment. And uh, so I think that uh, people like her uh, uh, will hopefully continue to put it out there and continue to lead. Thanks, Patrick. Um, we uh, really got into a lot of important areas, and uh, there's a lot of a lot more that could be discussed in this context, which I'd like to do. And so that's my kind of uh, insidious way of saying uh, we may have to have you back for sort of a, an encore well, well, performance. Well, um, we'll do but, this again anytime. And in the meantime, Doc, you better be ready for me because I'm coming back and get <laughs> you on the court. I'll be ready for you. And if you lose the first set, I'm not letting you take a bathroom break, okay? Okay. Well, I'm going to bring. I mean, that, that, what that says to me is I have to bring my performance enhancement, enhancement drugs with me onto the court. Exactly. Whatever. Whatever it takes. Great to see you, and uh, I appreciate you having me on the show. Okay. And uh, also, I mentioned before that uh, Patrick has a podcast, um, which is Center Court or uh, Holding Holding Court. Yeah, Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. I may need to get you back on again around the U.S. Open time, so we'll see. I know it's, it's really great. I've listened to a number of episodes and also uh, has one of the better books, uh, you know, kind of kiss and tell uh, books about uh, professional tennis, which is uh, my uh, hard court confidential, hard court confidential. That's yeah. it. So uh, in any event, thank you very much, Patrick. Thank uh, you, Doc. I look forward to seeing you on the court soon. Good. Well, uh, to our listeners, uh, I hope you found this interesting. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is Dr. Jeffrey Lieberman, Columbia University, talking to you for Shrink speak. Have a good day.